2 Samuel chapter 5. If you'll go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Today we continue the series Behind the Music, and we're definitely looking at the life of King David. And uh, last week we looked at his character, and today we're looking at his corruption. And uh, we're going to spend two weeks on this subject, so we're kind of going into uh, the next series. Actually, we're kind of bumping into it and moving it out another week because the subject matter that I'll be sharing today and next week, I feel is very important as it relates to many of us who, who many times try to maybe rationalize our sin. You know, when you think about King David, you think about his character. You think about the last four weeks of what we've been talking about as it relates to King David. And he was definitely a man who, who loved God. There's no one in this room who loved God more than David loved God. I mean, we see it in the pages of the Psalms. We, we hear of his, of his devotion, his steadfastness, his faithfulness to God. And yet he is a man who fell tremendously. He fell. And when you think about it, we, I mean, we've all know the story of, of he and Bathsheba, and we're going to be looking at that this morning. But the thing is, David was not the man he once was when he enters into this season of his life. And I think it's important to uncover what went wrong. How does someone fall so far the way David did? And he was obviously, as we said, a man after God's own heart. So look at the introduction there. King David's godly character begins to erode into what many call the corrupted years of his life. This did not happen overnight. It, it involved a steady progression of disobedience, discontentment, and lack of discipline that seemed to be fueled by what many would call a midlife crisis. Many who have looked at David's life as it relates to this season of his life, many have compared it to what many men go through and some women go through as a midlife crisis. And when we begin to, to fold back the scene of what's happening in David's life, many of us could probably say, you know something, I went through something like that. And I've seen that happen in other people. And so what I want us to do is look at what is involved when it comes to these things in which we become our own worst enemy. And that's exactly what happened with David. If you look at what the writer of Kings said about David, look at what it says. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And of course, this was Bathsheba's husband. What's interesting about David is, again, as I've said every week uh, over this study, we have seen David not only from the way he's described in the, the books of Samuel, but we also see David in his heart that's poured out before God. And as I've said every week, he, re he wrote two-thirds of the Psalms. And so we not only get the account of his life, we get to hear the heart behind what's going on in his life. And David wrote about even this season of his life as it related to his fall. Look at what he writes here in Psalms chapter 15. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your love and kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I have acknowledged my transgressions and my sin is always before you before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That is the, the music behind what just took place or what we're about to read in David's life. 
This is where his heart is. It's amazing when you look at these uh, four verses. You'll see that when it comes to sin, when it comes to iniquity, trespasses, he uses every one of those things to describe what he's done in his life, what has happened, this, this season of his life, which many would say is the corruption of his life. And he uses every one of the terms to talk about how he failed God in this matter. And so what did it take to get there? Look on your outline. The erosion of David's character. As we read these verses, keep in mind that David is at the height of his success as a king. He has had many victories in his life. He's seen many great things take place. Now he's approximately in his mid-40s where we pick up the scene that we're about to read today. So the first thing that we see, what, what, what began his downfall? We see, first of all, the prestige. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, look at verse 10. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. You see, if David's not careful, he could be thinking that all the great victories he had in his life was because he was so great. But what we find in this verse, especially in verse 12, we see that all the great successes that came, came David's way was not, it wasn't about David in and of himself. It was about the nation of Israel. It was about the people of God. Now, did David have, uh, did God have a place for David in his heart? Of course he did. We read that. There was a special relationship. But all this was bigger than David. It was for God's people. David was a gift to God's people as it related to the successes that they enjoyed. So we see his prestige, but something begins to change. Next, we see the pagan practices. There were certain things that we see that David was doing that led, what many people believe that led to his corruption. The first thing we see is the marrying of women. Look at verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. The Bible is very clear when it comes to certain things about how God's designed uh, different things, especially the institution of marriage. We know all about the fact that God has established the institution of marriage. And with it comes certain ideals about what that marriage looks like between a man and a woman. And we see it so clearly all through Scripture. But in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, here's what it says. Neither shall he, speaking of the king, multiply wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away. You see, that is a, a, a command of God that the kings of Israel would not do this. Now, why would God point that out there? Why would he say that they shall not take multiple wives? Because that's the way the world was doing it. That's the way the other nations were doing it. Those who did not claim that God was their God, Jehovah God. And so the rest of the world uh, kings were doing this. And so David was to be set apart. The nation of Israel was to be set apart as God's people. And God said, this should not be in the practice of the king of my people. Next, we see the movement of the ark. 
Many of you know the Ark of the Covenant was something that was established and, and put together. It led the nation of Israel, it had a rich history as, as it represented the presence of God. But what's interesting about this is the fact that God, everything that centered around the Ark, everything, everything around it was, was special about it, including the way it was moved, including the way it was transported. It was always intended to be transported on the backs of priests. There was a certain way that it moved from place to place, and we see it all through Scripture. But here's David, and David, he, there's something admirable that he wants to do. He wants to go get the ark and put it in its rightful place. And so he goes, he sends for the ark, and when he does, he puts it on a cart. He puts it on a cart. The Bible's very clear, that's not the way the ark is intended to be transported. Again, this is something else that sets God's people apart, even how the ark is transported. And so he puts it on a cart, and it begins to move that way. Well, evidently, something happens, a cart begins to shake, and, and one of the people puts their hand on the ark and is immediately killed. So David is left with his own frustrations. But again, David is getting sloppy. David's cutting corners. David's not going to, the, to God's Word to find out how do these things supposed to take. I am to consider God when it comes to the things of God. And, and, and David didn't even consider that. Something that one time in his life he probably did. He's starting to cut corners in his life. Next, we see the pride. We see the prestige. We see the pagan practices. And now we see the pride. If you look at chapter 6, look at verses 8 and 9. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. He's the one that died there uh, when attempting to move the ark. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? You see, the Amplified Bible gives us another translation as to what it means when it says, and David became angry. Another translation is, David became offended, offended at the Lord. Again, what does that imply? To me, it implies David had a measure of pride in his life. God, I'm trying to do a great thing here. I'm trying to, to bring something about that I thought you'd be on board with. And he made assumptions about what that would look like. He cut corners. He handled the things of God, those holy things of God. He didn't handle those things correctly. And we see this begin to stir in David's life. Next, the erosion of David's character can be found in the palace. The palace. And the first thing that we find here is a case of what many would call laziness. Other people would say, no, it's probably something else. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But look at 2 Samuel. Turn over to chapter 11. And I want you to be, look at verse 1. And again, this is David. This is not a common practice for David, what we're about to read. But it's something that has settled into David's way of life. Verse 1, it happened in the spring of that year. At the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabah, and David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. You see, something has gone 
wrong. Something is different than it once was. There's two things that we can take from what we just read. First of all, David wasn't with his army. He didn't go out as other times. I mean, there was probably a time in David's life where he never thought that he would send the army out, that he wouldn't be a part of that army, where he would be leading the people of God against these other nations. And David, something's different about David. Something is happening. Notice this. He's still in the bed. There's something different about David. Something that is different than anything we've seen before. We know he's probably not sick. We know that's not going on. I mean, because of what we're about to read a little bit later. And we see all these things take place. So what was David's problem? Here's what many people would say, including ourselves as we look here. And here's what we think. The failure to do what he was supposed to do was the reason for David's sin. We're getting ready to read the tragedy of David's corruption. We're getting ready to read how things went sideways for David. Many have said this, if you do what you ought to do, then you can't do what you shouldn't do. Sounds like good motherly advice, doesn't it? And that's what we have. Think about this. No one can do two things at one time when it comes to doing things that are different. And so David finds himself, David's sin was he was doing what he was supposed to, he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. Many would say, well, he was lazy. Others would say he lost his passion for battle. Uh, Some would say he was depressed. Maybe he was discouraged. The fact is, we know that he was not the same person he once was. Something is happening to David. Next, we read about his recklessness. Someone has rightly said, and this should drive it home to where we are today, someone has rightly said that there are three people who occupy the seat you're in right now. One of three people. The person you are now, the person you could be if you just totally sold out to what God has for you, and the person you could become by becoming reckless with your life. That's the potential that sits where you're sitting now. You know, when you think about David... I guarantee you David never thought his life was going to play out the way it's getting ready to play out. That David probably was one of those guys that probably thought, you know something, I've always served the Lord, I will always serve the Lord. If you were to, if you were to interview David many years later, he would have been the guy that would have said, I never dreamed I was capable of doing what I just did. Never dreamed I was capable of how far I could fall. But we see his recklessness. The three things that we notice about David's recklessness, look on your outline. First of all, the situation ensnared his mind. We're about to read what's going on, what's what's happening with him. Again, he's not where he was supposed to be, but look at verse 2 again. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Something ensnared his mind. There was something that apparently he became obsessed with. And and, and that's the only thing that seemed to occupy his mind, was this woman that he saw. Next, we see the situation erased his reason. Look at verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Is this not the wife of someone? 
I mean, again, can you imagine David ever doing this up to this point in his life? But something has ensnared his mind, his heart. Something is replacing the very thought of God in his mind, in his heart. He, he, it's this point that he becomes deceived. He becomes consumed. Thirdly, the situation eclipsed his God. Look at verse 4. Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. Again, David is doing something that if, if God were at the center of his heart, if God were at the center of his mind the way it had been up to this point in his life, this probably would not have happened. Look at what the terminology says. It says that David took her. It literally means that David said in his heart, I have to have her. I have to have her. And that's what we're finding here. So David was on the path of becoming someone he never thought he was capable of becoming. Can I tell you the process that took place in David's life? James chapter 1, write this chapter in it. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 is exactly what's playing out in David's heart right now. Here it is. James says, each one is tempted. Each one is tempted. Here's what that means. No one is immune to temptation. It's going to come our way. It was not the first time temptation ever came to David because we know that if we're breathing and our heart's beating, we are probably being tempted in some way every day of our lives. So this was not new to David. What changed is, for David is where the focus of his heart was. It was displaced. So every one of us are tempted. We're all drawn into these situations. And here's what it says. Each one is tempted when he is dragged away. What does it mean to be dragged away? You're dragged away from what is intended. Someone has said sin originates when something unhealthy on the inside is drawn to something evil on the outside. And David was on that path. James chapter 1 says, each one is tempted when he is dragged away, enticed and baited to commit sin by his own worldly or fleshly desire. The lust and the passion was burning within David. Then when the illicit desire has conceived, when it's been brought about, it gives birth to sin. And when sin has run its course, it gives birth to David. And James says, don't be misled. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let me tell you a little bit about deception. Deception, to not be deceived, to not be deceived, must be replaced with truth. At some point, David left truth. At some point, David turned his back on truth, and he was prey to deception. He was prey to all the things that the enemy could throw at him. And guess what? He was biting the bait. Romans 13, 14 says, Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust, its desires. Don't, don't let anything lead you down that path is really what it's saying. And, and what it's also saying is that whole idea that, that the flesh, when it gets that mind that it must have, and it begins to move and move towards the sin and all that kind of thing, you better be careful because it's only short steps away from destruction 
and consequences. If you know anything about David's life, you know what this moment is going to cost him. It's going to cost him dearly. Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his book Temptation writes this, in our flesh there is a slumbering inclination toward desire which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes power over the flesh and all at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. It makes no difference whether it's ambition for power or vanity or desire for revenge or greed for money or sexual desire. At that moment, God becomes unreal to us. And the only thing that matters at that point is, I must have. You see, the reality of God, listen, is not only the reality we lose. At that moment, we, use, we lose the reality of consequences the destruction of a family, the loss of testimony, the loss of innocence, the loss of life, the misery the sin brings in and of itself. All those things, when David began to move in that direction, nothing else mattered. God didn't matter. The consequences didn't matter. He must have. And it cost him. Next, we see David's impulsiveness. Look at chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. I'm with child. All because of his impulsiveness. Look on your outline. Look at the footnote. Sin occurs when there is an undetected weakness. There was something in David's life that there was a weakness that, that I think came about because of possibly uh, the prestige that came to his life. He began to believe the press about himself is what you could say. He started cut, uh, making, uh, cutting corners and shortcuts when it came to the things that are holy. And, and, and he began to take other women into his life. He was setting himself up for the great fall. But there was an undetected weakness. Second, there's an unprotected heart. Who, who would have ever dreamed that David would have had an unprotected heart based on the Psalms that he wrote that were so honest and real and transparent and genuine? Thirdly, an unexpected opportunity. All of a sudden, the opportunity to, re to reveal the weakness in his life came and he said, I must have. Chuck Swindoll writes in his book about King David. He says, when it comes to temptation, the enemy never gives us the complete picture. He shows us only the beauty, the ecstasy, the fun, the excitement, and the stimulating adventure of a stolen desire. He never gives all the details of the consequences. Next, we read about David's ruthlessness. If you were to look at chapter 11, Verse 6, let's just read that. Verse 6, then David said to Joab, now Joab was his commander, his general, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. All of a sudden, Uriah is where he was supposed to be. He's, on, he's fighting the battle where David should have been. And Joab's out, and he, and he gets word to Joab, send Uriah home. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. 
And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go to his own house. Do you see what David's up to? He's trying to cover his tracks. He's trying to, hopefully Uriah would meet up with Bathsheba, and and, and that would be the cover. Verse 10, so when David told, so when they told David saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a great journey? Why did you not go to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab, the servant of my, of my lord, are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not, I will not do this thing. Can you imagine the response, this response, how it would have hit David? David used to be this guy. You you know that much about David, don't you? Everything Uriah said would have been something back in his glory days, back in his days of character. David would have said those very words. That was the kind of guy he was. Can you imagine how hard that must have hit David? To think, wow, wow. Then in the next verses of chapter 11, David sets up Uriah to be killed. You remember he literally carries his own death warrant. David literally gives this man his own death warrant. The letter he's going to give him will will command Joab to, to put him on the front lines. And when he's out there on the front lines to retreat and leave him out there for dead. Wow, what is happening with David? The hardness of his heart, how ruthless he is. Isn't it amazing what we'll do to try to cover up sin? Sometimes covering up the sin is more destructive than the sin itself. And David finds himself in this place. I just have to think that if it was just days earlier that David uh, would not have dreamed where his sin was leading him. The Bible says this, beware lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Next, we read about his heartlessness. His heartlessness. This is where we read how Uriah was set up. He was set up. He would die there on the battlefield. What happened? I want to contrast. Again, we, David is unique to any other character in the Bible. We read about the activities of his life, the events of his life, and we get to hear his heart about those activities and those events. Before the fall, look on your outline, the contrasting psalms. The tone and content of his psalms begins to change. Before the fall, this is what you could have heard from David or what was written. Psalm Psalm chapter 5, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditations. David was there before God, and, and he wanted to reveal his heart to God. Let me ask you this. Whenever you're in sin, whenever you failed, 
Isn't God the last one you want to reveal your heart to sometimes? The shame, the guilt, and all that. This is before the fall. This is when he was in right standing with God. This is the David that we recognize. He goes on, he says, give heed, give heed to the voice of my cry, my king, and my God. For to you I will pray my voice. You shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look to you. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in the wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy, you shall destroy those who speak falsehoods. And the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Who has become the one that he said that God will come down on? He's become that man. But as for me, this is where he was before the fall. I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Wow. After the fall. After the fall. According to the last verses of chapter 11, it appears that David covered his sin for about a year until the, Nath, until the prophet Nathan shows up. You remember the encounter? If you know anything about the encounter, the prophet Nathan confronts him about his sin. I can't imagine what that year must have been like for David. Had to have been the most miserable year of his life. And all of a sudden, he's confronted with his sin. In Psalms 38, look at what it says. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head, and like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. He's overwhelmed with what he's feeling, his guilt, his shame. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. God, I'm in misery with this. These Psalms definitely reveals that something has changed in David's heart. Let me tell you something that many people, when they read this story about David, Many people would say that David may not be fully aware of actually what he's going through. And we're not going to give David a pass because of what he's going through. We're not going to say, oh, well, this, uh, this explains it here, so you got to give him a little latitude on it. No, no, no. We're not making an excuse for David. But there could have been something going on that even David wasn't aware that was really going on in his life. Many people believe that David went through a midlife crisis. I want to ask you men, there's a bunch of you men in here, and maybe some of you ladies. Ladies, you can go through this too, but mostly men it, it tend to go through time like this. I went through it in my 40s. And I tell you, it was a real tough time. I'm just going to be honest with you. I shared some of the information I'm getting ready to share with you with men two years ago. And some of you may have remembered it. But I think we need to be reminded of what can actually take place in a man's heart if we're not careful, if we're not alert, if we're not watchful. So the question is, is there really such a thing as a midlife crisis? Yes, there is. There is a such thing. What do you think when you hear the phrase of midlife crisis? 
I think for some people, they, uh, it's the man who, who, who used to help drive the minivan, or he, he drove the four-door four sedan, now he's showing up in a red convertible. There's the midlife crisis, right? I mean, remember the father of the bride, too, Steve Martin. He comes home one day, and his wife doesn't recognize him. He's colored his hair. He's, you, you remember that? I mean, it's just one of those things where all of a sudden uh, something is different. I always thought a midlife crisis was someone who was afraid of dying. But it's not a fear of dying. It's really a grieving over a lost youth. The grieving of lost youth. How many of you, um, sometimes it's difficult to See a picture of yourself nowadays. I remember a couple years ago, I went back and I had some real close middle school friends. I think back then we called it junior high. And I remember going, I was going to find one of my good buddies. And so uh, I looked him up, I tracked him down, you know, stalked him the best I could, you know, that kind of thing. And I found a picture of him. And it popped up, and he's now living in Houston. He's some vice president of some transportation company. And, and, and his picture popped up, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, he is so old. <laughs> <laughs> Tina and I can be out somewhere, and she'll look at him. She'll say, you know, they look to be our age. I'm like, they're old. What are you talking about? <laughs> Grieving of lost youth. This information will be on the iDesk right there, but I want to quickly go through a couple things. What is a midlife crisis? It's been called a second childhood, a second adolescence, male menopause, <laughs> an attempt to sidestep mortality. I call it a perfect time for the enemy to bring destruction to a person's life. Midlife is a transitional season of life that is very strange and difficult, that seems to follow a period of self-evaluation or a period of reassessment. There's a part of me that believes that there's things that God puts in us that are healthy. How many of you agree with that? There's times in our life, seasons in our life, where we should be looking at things that God desires us to look at, maybe some, some idea of, of self-evaluation, which I think is always healthy. But what I've noticed about the enemy is he never misses an opportunity. How many of you know what I'm talking about? He never misses an opportunity. And it could be that the enemy, I mean, that God himself has placed certain things in us that the enemy, that is his, that's the way he will attack. And I'm convinced that those who, of us who have gone through midlife crisis or a midlife, we, we face something along those lines. Now, let me say this. It can affect every area of a man's life or a person's life, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, relationally, occupationally. I have talked to men, mostly men, who have gone through something like this. And I've done enough research. I, when I, it started happening to me, I, I didn't have anybody warn me this was going to come up in my 40s. For some men, it's in their late 30s. For some, it's in their early 50s. But I had no idea what I was going through. So I started finding books. And when I found the book, I began to read, especially from a Christian perspective, what was really going on. And it described me to the T. 
my thought processes, what was going on. And, and as I've shared with other men one-on-one and in groups, I can't tell you how many men come up to me and say, man, I thought I was really messed up. You were messed up too, right? I say, yes. <laughs> many wives during this time think their husbands are going crazy. I thought I was going crazy. It can be a great source of frustration. I do want to say this. Do all men go through a midlife crisis? Midlife, yes. Does it have to be a crisis? No. I've met men and talked to other men. Matter of fact, when I was going through it, I started reaching out to everyone I could, and I found out some men, it, well, at least they didn't admit it, <laughs> told me they, never, they didn't necessarily go through anything like that. I thought, well, what's wrong with me? <laughs> but but we're, all, we're praying. Midlife, as I said, can be a good thing. I, I believe God desires to use our midlife, the midlife part of our lives, for us to evaluate our lives and reassess our lives. In his book, Halftime, Bob Buford describes midlife as a, trans, a transition from success orientation to significance orientation. And I saw this play out in my life. For, for many of us, before midlife, everything is all about success. It's all about being the best us we can be. And then after that period of time, it seems to be more of the idea of, uh, of we're trying to look for significance. We're, it's almost like the legacy that goes from us. I started looking back at my life, and that's when I started mentoring young men was after this. I saw that I wanted God to use me as a legacy to, to mentor young men, especially those going into ministry. And all that can be a very healthy thing. But many times the enemy uses it in awful ways. What are the symptoms of midlife crisis? Lack of motivation. Could you see that in David's story? Lack of motivation, not passionate about what was once passionate about. Feelings of being trapped. A lot of men that I've noticed, uh, uh, they've become highly dissatisfied with their careers, their jobs. It, it literally becomes, there's got to be more to it than this, to life. Ego begins to take a hit, a self-doubt, self-pity, discouragement, depression, Worthlessness, aging and appearance. That'll mess you up pretty bad. Physically fatigued. And if you've seen in us commercials, testosterone levels begin to drop. I mean, everything, every, in any way you can be affected, all these things are happening. The reaction to these symptoms, let me say this, the reaction to these symptoms can be very dangerous to a man and those around him, and to a woman, if she happens to go through it. All of these things seem to motivate men to go to radical lengths to prove otherwise. Many begin, become disengaged with once meaningful relationships. Financial irresponsibility. Many men tell me, you know, I'm not going to be around forever. They just started figuring that out. I'm not going to be around forever. And they go and they spend money on crazy stuff. Some of y'all are smiling like, and your wife's looking at you like, you did this. You, you, this is you. Yeah. Uh, 
They question everything about their life, including faith. The emotions of a midlife crisis many times leads a person to search for unhealthy distractions or escapes. Keep in mind that for many who are Christian, many of those who are followers of Jesus, this becomes, listen, some of the strongest spiritual warfare they have ever faced. It's where the enemy brings out the big guns. Getting quiet in here, isn't it? Some of you younger people are sitting here and like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's real. I want to talk more about this next week. How many of you like, left, like to be left hanging? But we're going to talk about this next week. We're going to talk about how do, you, how do you go through this in a healthy way? Is it possible to go through this in a healthy way? What can you do? Look, I want to leave you with this verse. I do want to close you with this verse. Here it is. I don't want to leave you without anything. Here's the application. Look on your own. In all things, be sober. Not under the influence of something. Okay? Be vigilant. Watchful to detect danger. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. Who will be the next one he'll destroy, is what it's really saying. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come to you right now. and Lord, we know that when we look at our lives, that some of our lives are, when it comes to us living it out, it's like a minefield sometimes. And Father, I just pray, Lord, that as we begin our journey to, to, um, for self-evaluation, for reassessment, Lord, I have no doubt that midlife is intended for, for those things to come about, for us to take note of what our life has produced up to that point, for us to transition in our life to look more towards the legacy of what we'll leave behind. And Lord, I have no doubt that you, you place that in our souls. Father, so many times, just like in every other season of life, the enemy just wants to creep in and destroy and bring destruction in the midst of these deep things you want to do in our lives. Father, I pray for the one that's sitting in this room that's going through a time like this. Lord, I pray that they'll cling to you more than they've ever clung to you. Father, that they wouldn't take those steps and become deceived. But Lord, help them to count the cost of what their actions may bring. Father, I pray for the one that's in this room that maybe they've gone through that period in their time, the period of their life, and, and they're living with some of the consequences of the bad decisions. I just pray for them, Lord. Help them to know that your mercies are new every day. While, Father, there may be consequences that will last, but, Lord, you desire a, a right relationship with them, as we're going to see in David next week. Father, most of all, help us to be watchful. Help us to be diligent, to seek your face in the matters of our lives. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Would you stand with us at this time? Sing with us.